Hello. I'm Washi Ginsberg. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, this is episode 344 of the show with Eitan Lenko, and you don't get to make 344 episodes of the show at the same time as holding down a TV career if you don't have help. I have a few people that help me make this show, namely Andy Ma, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my show producer, and I need to pay those people. So depending on where you're listening, you might hear an ad right now. If you do hear an ad, I thank you because you are helping me help pay Andy and Rachel so they can help me make the show, which you are now about to hear. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. The coal and gas contribution to the economy and to jobs and all that stuff, obviously it's there, but that story relies on the impression that what happens to coal and gas is under our control. Where it's not, we export those things and you only export things when there's a buyer on the other side. And the buyers are going away. Even the government doesn't argue anymore that the buyers aren't going to go away for coal. And for gas, we're starting to see that trend as well. And there's LNG tankers now floating around the world full of gas with nowhere to go because the demand's dropped out of the market. This transition's going to happen whether we like it or not. And we can keep our head in the ground and have a lot of people be out of work without a lot of notice and without a plan for what they should do. Or we can recognise there's a transition happening. We've got huge opportunities in that transition and let's plan for it, for where those people go, what we do with our economy and not have it like catch us by surprise in five or ten years' time when China says, that's it, we're not importing coal anymore, we've got enough of our own. That is the chairperson and interim CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, Eitan Lenko. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Washi Ginsberg. Thanks so much for being here. This is a show that is guaranteed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something that you hear during this conversation will help you go to bed tonight going, you know what, today was it was better than it was yesterday. That's what I'm here to do. That's what every show is here to do. This is episode 344 of the show with Eitan Lenko. There's 343 other interviews you can listen to. Every one of them. Make today better than yesterday. That's the plot promise. Not only that, there's a show every Friday as well. Mondays I talk to a guest. Fridays I talk to you. Thanks to everybody that got in touch with me about Friday's show. Did you, A lot of journaling happening. I appreciate you getting in there and doing the work. Um, listen to Friday's show if you want to know about that. But yeah, we speak with Eitan Lenko about the million jobs plan. That's a lot of jobs. Makes me happy. We'll talk to him in a minute. You good? You okay? You're working out? You're doing any exercise? You're getting out of the house? You're going for a walk? You're tidying up? You're getting those dishes out of the sink? Just start with one. Just get a soapy sponge. Start with one. Work from there. Did you make your bed in this morning? Did you? It's important. Have you been writing it all down? Have you been getting up early? You've been doing the journaling you need to do? It's important. You're controlling the things you can, letting go of the things you can't, remembering that Every other person on the planet is just like you. They want the same things you do. They're just wrapped in someone else's skin. 
And usually the, their actions say more about what they're afraid of than more about what they love. Remembering that shit kind of helps you get through the day, I find. <laughs> I find, at least. I hope you're doing all right. I hope everything's okay with you. We continue here at Rancho Relaxo. We're still trying to get the baby to go to sleep. But he's delightful, so it's okay. And uh, the oldest, G, she's in holidays, and she's great. And um, what else is happening? I'm, I'm doing squats again because my hip hurts. But, you know, trying to find 10 weeks. I'm grateful that there's work. But... um trying to find 10 weeks to go and get some hip surgery is uh, proving to be difficult but we will uh we will get there we will get there are you good though are you all good otherwise great look i'm bloody happy to talk to you today because as you know if you've read my book oh speaking of my book there's a new version of the book coming out fuck what am i talking about july 8th july 8th which is like tomorrow tomorrow wednesday the new book comes out on wednesday the 8th of july it's um a second edition of the book it's the B format. It's a little smaller when you hold it in your hands. There's new photos and there's a new couple of new chapters from me and there's a chapter from Audrey. Audrey, my wife, and I have done a few podcasts together and she's been very generous with talking about what it's like to live with a person who has um, on occasion mental ill health and on other occasion has you know periods of mental illness. And she was very generous with her story. And you can find it in the new version of the book, which is out on Wednesday. So um, go and get it. There's probably a link at osherginsberg.com. I think Haley put something there. So go and grab it. That'd be ace. If you've read that book, the first version, or listened to the show at all, you'll know that climate change is the uh, top of mind for me. And as it should be, um, we should all be doing everything we can every day. Um, we're not, but we're doing what we can with what we have where we are. So climate change is a big thing for me and inaction on climate change is one of the things that really sent me off the edge of the world a couple of years back. And I lamented because I was really, really, really worried that there was nobody who, who saw it as urgently as I did. But thankfully, there are people that do. One of those people is Eitan Lenko and I, I can't wait, can't wait to uh, get the conversation on uh, with him. But before we do that, if interesting conversations about, you know, controlling the things you can and, you know, letting go of the things you can't and, and monitoring what does come into your head so you can be more effective, so you can make great decisions. If those sort of things tickle your fancy, you may be interested in episode 311 of this show with author, farmer, blogger, all-round legend, lover of stoicism, uh, swimmer, and excellently tattooed man, Ryan Holiday. He came on the show on uh, episode 311 and had a few things to say that I absolutely adored. The news is not in the business of informing you. If they were in the business of informing people, people would then become informed and then they wouldn't watch the news anymore. <laughs> so it's, it's realizing that the business of the news is to get you to continue watching the news. Like your phone's job is not to solve your problems. Your phone is to become the ongoing way of managing your problems, right? In the way that like methadone isn't supposed to get you off of heroin, it's supposed to get you on to methadone. So realizing that the job of the news is to always be developing, always be breaking, but never actually get to the final conclusion where you are informed was really helpful to me because then I go, oh, okay, 
I'm not going to follow the news to know what's happening. I'm going to look actually backwards towards history, and I'm not going to let the news rile me up or make me think the world is ending or ruin my day. I'm going to decide where I get my information and why. That's the episode with Ryan Holiday. You can catch that further back in this podcast feed. It's episode 311. Just look for Ryan Holiday. All right, let me tell you about my guest today. Eitan Lenko is a tech entrepreneur out of Melbourne, Australia. He's the founder of Outerwear, which is one of Australia's fastest growing and I guess most awarded uh, tech companies. He's got a background in engineering and has a deep knowledge about a current state of energy transition. What does that mean? It means transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Eitan is passionate about the possibilities and the opportunities that we have to transform our economy as a response to climate change. It's a story that I adore that that is his way of discussing it and the way of speaking about it. You know, I've had on this show, I've had conversations that are heavy as shit and are terrifying and horrible and awful and staring at it with your eyes squeegeed open. But Aitan is like, yep, all that's happening and there's possibility and there's joy and there's abundance if we do the right thing. And that's why I love speaking to Eitan. He's the chairperson and interim CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, a think tank that does exactly what they say on the box. It's not just zero emissions. It's how far can we go beyond that? What can we do and what's what's possible here? What's, what's the chance we have here to make something really, really incredible? And speaking of really incredible, that is exactly what Eitan and the team have done. They've just launched the Million Jobs Plan, which is a bold scheme, a bold plan, a very well-researched plan to transition Australia off of fossil fuels and onto renewables, bringing jobs, growth, prosperity, and even security to our country. We needed this to happen before the bushfires of the summer. We need it now even more that our economy is in such a a, a difficult state with COVID-19 ravaging the situation. Aitan's not kidding. I grilled him on this. He's got a million jobs lined up. They've done their homework. They know what they're looking at. They are very, very diligent in what they've put together. If you or anyone you know is at all confused or skeptical about where the economy is headed and, and is there really prosperity and benefit in transiting towards renewables and off of fossil fuels, this is an episode to listen to. This is an episode to share with them. This is an episode to get them to listen to. Because the plain fact is coal is not going to be a product that people will want in 20 years. It's a fact, all right? We can decide when we transition our economy away from just selling coal and what else we can do to get our energy and the energy we need to power our lives. We can decide when it happens or we can have that decision made for us. And I'm sure that we would rather decide when we do it rather than have the market say, okay, it's off and we have to figure out what to do in a hurry. I bet we'd rather have a plan for it. And that is exactly what Aitan and the team have done. He's an absolute legend. He's a super smart fella, lovely bloke, kind heart, speaks with possibility, joy, and abundance in his heart. Love him to pieces. You can find out more about what he's doing, bze.org.au. Call your MP. I've done it. You can do it. Call your MP. Let them know that you want them to look seriously at this plan. A million jobs a million jobs are out there. They well and truly are. It's not magical fairy dust jobs. It's proper, proper jobs that will bring sustainability, that will bring job security, that will bring political stability, 
And yeah, I'm serious. It's extraordinary uh, what they've done. But call your MP, get them onto it. Go and have a read, bze.org.au. If it's for you, give them a buzz. You can find Aitan on Twitter. He's Aitan Lenko, E-Y-T-A-N-L-E-N-K-O. Enjoy the show with Aitan Lenko. How are you, Aitan? I'm great. It's good. <laughs> it's good to talk to you today, buddy. I'm, I'm grateful uh, that we can speak to each other in a public way. I'm grateful that we can have a conversation that can go on the record because you and I have had some pretty great conversations that have left me feeling a lot more hopeful than I had been feeling. And I'm, I'm grateful that I might be able to share a bit of that. I'm all about positivity. All about positivity. <laughs> all about positivity. You look like you're in a pretty fancy space. What is that space that you're in? My, my home office. We built a house recently and I had the... Uh, premonition that a home office was going to be something that I was going to need in the future. So I kind of decked it out. And uh, it's been a great place to bunker down during coronavirus. (laughs) It's a pretty serious home office, bro. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty happy to talk to you today. You are the chairperson of Beyond Zero Emissions, correct? Correct. Correct. And uh, interim CEO. An interim CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. Now, for folks who um, might not be aware, we'll, we'll get to how you got to Beyond Zero Emissions on, on the way, but what is it that Beyond Zero Emissions aims to do? What it says on the box? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So in 2008, some crazy dudes got together and said, what happens if we actually got together a bunch of engineers and scientists and and technical experts and got them to literally put together a plan for how we can get to 100% renewables, what technology we can get off the shelf, where it would go, how much it would cost, even like, you know, how much concrete would we need, how much steel would we need, how many jobs would we need? And they pulled together this amazing team. Everyone contributed their time for free, basically, because we were all passionate about it. And that's when I got involved back then as well. And we did it. And in 2010, it came out, the Beyond Zero Emissions Stationary Energy Plan. And it was the first plan that literally showed how we could get to 100% renewables. And that was launched by Malcolm Turnbull all the way back then at at Sydney Town Hall, I think in front of like 1,200 people. Wow. And it really did, it shifted the conversation overnight from it's not possible to do this to it's too expensive to do this or, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot of money, which is a step forward. Yeah. And, you know, in many ways, that's sort of still where we are today. But since then, BZD has gone on to, to do similar plans across every sector of the economy, like transport, buildings, land use and industry. And now we're really focusing on, on regions um, of Australia that are struggling with the transition. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about our, our national plan that we're working on at the moment. Now, Australia hears a lot about this, and we've been hearing a lot about this. I think, you know, it really first started coming to light when our Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, said um, climate change is the great moral challenge of our time, and then brought in a carbon tax that was that went away. And there's, there's a few moments there where we, we could have had, we had a moment, and then it went away. As far as where we are in Australia right now, where are we with our emissions right now? We're in a very interesting place. I think what's changed since back then and when BZD started doing our work is that the story back then was that it's a moral challenge. Like we need to get on top of climate change because we want a planet that we can live on and we want our kids to have good lives. It's going to be more expensive because the technology is not as mature. 
but it's worth it because all of that stuff is obviously worth it. But now we're in a really interesting situation where actually that technology through a lot of hard work that's happened in, you know, across the whole world through deployment of those technologies, they've come down in cost so much that they're now the cheapest form of energy. So we're saying we need to do this, you know, in order to have a habitable planet and all that stuff. But it also happens to be the most economic way forward for our economy. And for Australia, it's amazing because we've got the best renewable resource in the world. So actually, in a world that does this, we've got a, ma a massive competitive advantage as well. So the economic facts have changed. Obviously, politically, there's still issues because Australia is the world's largest coal exporter and, you know, I think the second largest gas exporter. So we've got to um, confront that reality and, and show that there's a pathway forward where we can maintain prosperity, which I believe, and that's the work that BZD does. But that's got to get across into the public consciousness and then into the political consciousness for us to realise actually this is an opportunity, not, not a threat, and it's something we should really lean into. Because there really is that trope, that story, I'll call it, that this lucky country that we have, everything that we own, everything that we have and the quality of life we have is because of coal and is because of gas. And if you want to take that away, then you hate what it is to be Australian because you'll take everything else away. But that's not exactly real, is it? That's like a story you tell to a kid to stop them from running away from a campfire at night. What's the reality? Yeah, well, the reality is, I mean, there's two sides to that. I mean, the coal and gas contribution to the economy and to jobs and all that stuff, obviously it's there, but it's, it's probably overstated. There's, there's a whole lot of other things that make up our economy as well. But secondly, I think that story relies on the impression that what happens to coal and gas is under our control, where it's not. We export those things and you only export things when there's a buyer on the other side. And the buyers are going away. Like, even the government doesn't argue anymore that the buyers aren't going to go away for coal. And for gas, we're starting to see that trend as well. And one of the things that coronavirus has shown us is that in moments like these, that those trends just get accelerated. You know, we've seen coal and gas. There's LNG tankers now floating around the world full of gas with nowhere to go because the demand's dropped out of the market. So, you know, this transition's going to happen whether we like it or not. And we can keep our head in the ground and not be prepared for it and have a lot of people be out of work without a lot of notice and without a plan for what they should do. Or we can recognise that there's a transition happening. We've got huge opportunities in that transition and let's plan for it and, and actually have a plan for where those people go, what we do with our economy and not have it like catch us by surprise in five or ten years' time when China says that's it, we're not importing coal anymore, we've got enough of our own. If I believe that story... Everyone that doesn't do my job is apparently a coal miner. That's how important <laughs> and how many of these jobs there are. I'm like, well, there must be fucking everyone mining coal right now. But that can't be real. What, how many people work in, in coal mining? I think in the fossil fuel mining industry, and don't quote me, I think it's around 150,000 right. people. It's not insignificant, but, yeah, it's not everyone. Right. We've been very lucky. The lucky country is, isn't what you think it is. The lucky country is that we've, we've managed to stumble backwards down the set of stairs and land on our feet every single time because we have all this land, all this space, all this water, all these resources. And 
coal, it seems to me, it's a big fat resource and it's easy to dig out of the ground and there's a market for it right now and why would we want to mess with that? Why would we want to mess with what's made Australia Australian and what's brought economic prosperity? The argument on the other side is of this conversation is that it's brought economic prosperity and lifted millions out of poverty, this access to cheap uh, energy. But what you're saying is it's no longer the cheapest energy and very, very soon in less time than my kid's been alive, the biggest markets we sell to won't want to buy it anymore. And if we don't start planning now, we're going to get caught with our pants down. Exactly. If we were the world's largest exporter of typewriters and someone had just invented the computer, you know, and I was sitting here saying, you know what, it's great that we're exporting typewriters, but I don't think that market's going to be around forever. Have you, have you seen those computers there? <laughs> they do a lot more and they're cheaper. Maybe, you know, if we've got the capability to build computers, maybe we should start thinking about getting into that. It's pretty much just that. It's obsolete technology. Yeah. And what you're saying is the decision's already been made as to how long this stuff's going to be viable as a product. And what you're saying is that we have an opportunity to decide when we transition rather than have that transition forced upon us. Correct. We have an opportunity. And actually... This moment in time is a very special moment because we've come out of this coronavirus crisis or COVID-19 crisis. I'm never sure what, what the official term uh, is. COVID-19, because there's many coronaviruses. <laughs> True. There's a few, many coronaviruses, but COVID-19 is, it's actually SARS-CoV-2 is the virus and COVID-19 is the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2. I don't, want to, I don't want to besmirch any good coronaviruses out there by like <laughs> lumping them all together. Just sitting around <laughs> going, how dare you? We've been doing nothing but good work out here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we, we were in a moment because obviously we've done what we had to do. We've listened to the scientists and we've done what we had to do to protect ourselves from having a mega crisis here with COVID-19. But that's meant that obviously the economy has been impacted. I think as we speak, the unemployment rate's gone above 7% for the first time in a long time. And we know that we're going to have to spend money to get the economy back on track. So we're at a crossroads, you know? Do we want the economy that we had? Do we want to double down on a, on a polluting, inefficient economy? Or do we want to invest in a, you know, the trend of where things are going, the, the decarbonisation trend, the electrification trend, what I call the digitisation trend, you know, moving to electrical technologies and then having them powered by cheap, efficient, non-polluting renewables. And the premise, I think, for an effective, or not just I think, I mean, generally accepted the premise for effective stimulus spending is that you want to accelerate a trend that's already in place. You want to bring forward jobs that are going to be created anyway in the future and make sure that they're created today when we need them. So if we accept that there is a trend out there, there's a trend towards digitization and electrification and decarbonisation, then you know, this is the moment where we should be investing to bring those jobs forward today and, and upgrade our infrastructure and really set ourselves up for the next 50 years of growth so that we can keep being that lucky country because we've got all the ingredients in place to do that. And that's the work that Beyond Zero Emissions is doing now. We've put together a what we're calling the Million Jobs Plan. You know, we're going to need a million jobs to be created over the next few years to stop unemployment from getting out of control. And this is really the one project that we can create jobs on that scale and, um, you know, get long-term benefits from it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So it seems to me like this is a no-brainer, but it also seems to me that because this is not just an economic decision, look, not only do we have to do this because the markets are going to go away, not only do we have to do this because we need to create the jobs, we also have to do this because we just can't keep burning fossil fuels if we want to have a planet to live on, all right? And that, though, that's the third thing I mentioned. It is the thing that's of most priority to me. But I understand that if you mention that first, a lot of people will go, I agree, fuck off. You'll shut a lot of people <laughs> down. So in this conversation, why is it so important to lead with the economic argument and lead with the prosperity argument? Well, like you say, I think you have to be sensitive to where the conversation is at and to what people are feeling. Like there's emotion out there. Australia's unemployment rate is up. And understandably, for people that are affected, the abstract, you know, although it's becoming less abstract by the day and we've just gone through all these bushfires, but, you know, climate change is still, you know, relatively abstract for people's day-to-day lives. Coronavirus was a lot less abstract, as you've talked about a lot in your podcast, but unemployment is also extremely non-abstract. When, you, when you're worrying about bringing income to your family, maintaining your lifestyle, all those sorts, you know, even your self-esteem of being unemployed, suddenly, you know, that goes to the top of the hierarchy of things that you need to understand. And when, when people are feeling the urgency around something like that, creating jobs, I mean, obviously that's where government goes to too. And then the government then leading through government is all about priorities and, and making decisions what you want to do. And maybe after the bushfires, you know, it was leaning towards let's get some action going on climate change because that's what the public is demanding and we're seeing the impacts of that. Well, that's swung now and it's all about where do we create the jobs because that's what the public's demanding and that's what people are feeling. And as I've said, it just so happens that we can solve all the problems together. It seems though that, you know, there's been a bit of news recently about the government's decision on how they may want to begin this infrastructure plans and go for shovel-ready projects. And they seem curiously stacked towards the gas sector, Aitan. If this is such a no-brainer, if this is such an obvious choice, how come the Australian government might be pushing towards, you know, opening up, burning more fossil fuels and opening up more gas development? It's interesting. I mean, what, what I find interesting is actually the outcome that the government's looking for is the right outcomes. Like they're talking about manufacturing in Australia and growing the manufacturing industry. You know, fantastic. We should be doing that. You know, they're they're talking about unlocking cheap energy to be able to power manufacturing and to lower the cost of living. I agree with that. I'm sure we all agree with that as well. I think they've identified the right outcomes for what we're going for. Even, you know, recently they talked about the renovation package, you know, upgrading people's houses and, and making the houses better to live in. We can get behind that as well. But 
I think there's there's a mismatch underneath of the underlying technology that we need to drive all that stuff. Like once you accept that renewables are the cheapest form of energy, and in fact, they're on a learning curve, so they're only getting cheaper over time. And, and the projections out to 2030 are like, frankly, insane. Like, you know, energy almost becomes free by 2030 if we have enough renewables in place. And then obviously, if you've got really cheap energy, you can drive manufacturing with that. And BZD has done a lot of work to show that we can electrify our manufacturing industry. So the thesis is correct. You know, we want to increase manufacturing through getting cheaper energy, and that will create jobs and set Australia up and make us competitive. It's just that um, renewables is the natural pathway to that by any reading of the economics. And so it is confusing why, why gas, you know, gas used to be that pathway. So, and, you know, let's be generous and say it just takes time sometimes for, for common wisdom to go away and for new paradigms to be understood, particularly in places like governments, which are, you know, can be slow moving at times. So that's our job to kind of put the facts and figures in front of people and decision makers and encourage them to take an evidence-based approach. Because if we're taking an evidence-based approach and an economic approach, then this approach uh, wins at the moment. So that's what we're trying to do. And particularly now, after the last three or four months of those particular stakeholders and people in power looking to evidence and looking for the right economic move and following those and making Australia one of the very few countries to be handling the coronavirus, the COVID-19, both health and economic pandemic incredibly well. We are very, very fortunate in this country. It's not like this overseas. So similarly, it's like, right, so those graphs you've been looking at, uh, here's another <laughs> one that has a very similar shape <laughs> with a very similar capacity and a very similar timeline. <laughs> It's really very interesting that they've kind of shown their hand in many ways. Many of these power players, they've shown their hand as like, oh, you actually do listen to science when you want to. And you do listen to economic argument when you want to. So here's one. So a million jobs is a lot of jobs. I just read a thing before I got on this call with you saying uh, like 2.3 million people either lost their jobs or lost hours in May in 2020, which is, that's a lot. It's a lot of people who need work. A million jobs seems like a very tricky thing to pull out of your hat. Aitan, <laughs> where's a million jobs going to come from? Well, this is an ambitious plan, and you're right, a million jobs is, is a lot of jobs. But when you think about the project, I guess, to decarbonise the Australian economy, let's accept my thesis that there's lots of benefits in that, and that long-term it's going to be an amazing thing, but it's a big job to do it. So what BZD have done is look across basically on the scale of what we need to do what are the different areas of the economy where we're going to have to put effort in and how many jobs can we get out of those? So some of the highlights, obviously the basis of any plan like this is going to be a big build-out of renewables, and we're talking about building out 90 gigawatts of renewables over, over the next five years, which is a lot of renewables, but we've got at the moment 130 gigawatts of renewables in the, in the pipeline in Australia of, of projects that have been put forward yeah. to be um, to, at various stages. So the, the projects are there. Give me an idea, like, with the current amount of gigawatts of renewables that we've got, with plus these 130, plus these 90, where does that go to meeting our current energy or projected energy demands? So this will get, this will get us well on the way to 100% renewables. Right. That's huge. Absolutely. Yeah. So a million jobs is a lot of jobs to come out of thin air, Aitan, all right? And what you're talking about is we have this opportunity right now and I believe you were working on this before anybody knew what SARS-CoV-2 was. So you were still looking at it as a very important thing for our country to do. But as far as being through that pandemic, I think there was one point, Aitan, where 
I read a thing saying we were less than two months away from running out of liquid fuel because of global shipping stoppages. And that would mean our country would be fucked. The food supply would grind to a halt. Small towns would not be able to get the trucks in to fill their supermarkets. It would have been a very bad thing. Very, very bad thing. And it really shined a light on the dire need for energy independence or less reliance on imported fuels to get us from place to place. And so the the push towards being sovereign or being independent as far as our energy goes to get us around, to make sure our food supply keeps going, to make sure our industry keeps going, is now really, really in the in in the spotlight. So with that as well, it seems that this argument towards, look, we're going to have to make a move, just gets stronger because of this lockdown and because of the economic peril that we, we saw and are seeing right now. So obviously people are talking about making jobs. Where do you start? A million jobs is a lot of jobs. Where do you even begin, Eitan? Yeah, well, you're right. A million jobs is a lot of jobs. But the scale of the project to decarbonise Australia is huge as well. So we've got a lot of work to do to decarbonise Australia. And and if you accept my thesis that that will have a lot of benefits because uh, renewables are now the cheapest form of energy and basing an economy of that. Also, there's there's been a lot of talk through this crisis about uh, self-reliance. You know, when, when the rest of the world does go through a crisis and suddenly we're on our own and we need our own stuff, you know, we need to be able to rely on our own energy and not assume that oil is going to be exactly as you say, that the oil is going to be arriving from other countries. So this electrification plan, basically, you know, we're talking about electrifying as much as possible and then powering it all with renewables would mean that we'd be self-reliant and safer and more secure as a country. So, you know, if we kind of start looking into some of the areas, obviously the the foundation of any electrification plan is is the energy itself. And we're proposing a big renewable energy build out over the next five years, which would, on its own would create 120 to 160,000 jobs. So that's building the solar farms and the wind farms and also building the transmission infrastructure out to where we need it to be and also you know, the batteries and the other storage that we'll require. And the reason is there's so many jobs in that is because we're assuming that we're being smart about it and not just importing all those wind turbines from China, but you know, if we're going to build something on that scale, we're going to put around that local procurement laws so that, you know, if you're going to build a wind farm in Australia, you're going to build the components of that wind farm in Australia. And this would be such a pretty big build out. So there'll be the scale that we can create a manufacturing industry around it. So building the actual wind turbines and as much as possible, the components for the solar farms, actually building them here, like smelting the steel, you know, making it all as much as possible, bending it, shaping it, building the components, putting it all together, trucking it out there. You know, at the very least, we're assembling it here. And if you need to import the components and then then have people putting them together, but we're already smelting the steel and all that sort of stuff here. So, you know, let's be ambitious. The next area is our buildings. And buildings are a great area for stimulus spending because there's you know, the construction industry always gets hit hard in a slowdown. You know, you've got your tradies and all those sorts of guys that, that need to get back to work pretty quickly. So I think this is a really interesting part of our plan. We're talking about creating 3 million zero energy buildings. So rather than just paying people just to do a renovation and, and put it in your kitchen, you're paying people to upgrade the energy efficiency of their houses, electrify their houses, you know, remove the gas and put in electrical appliances and then also have it powered by solar and and a battery if you need it 
So that cost kind of works out to around $25,000 per house to get them to the point where they won't pay any energy bills in the future. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the amount that we pay for energy bills over the next five years basically cancels that out, if you know what I mean. So it pays for itself. Oh, have you seen the what the Dutch are doing? I think it, they call it en- energy sprung or something yeah. wild in, in the Netherlands. It basically means energy jump. So they basically take an old school house. Well, you look in the Netherlands, they're mostly terrace houses. They're all grouped together. And they essentially wrap it. You don't even have to move out of the house. They wrap it in this super hyper-insulated cladding and then seal it completely so they almost can create a passive house situation. And as you mentioned, while the cost might be a little more upfront, it can be done at scale and it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, it's great that you mentioned that because that's actually the program that's been inspiring us. Oh, really? And we specifically talk about, yeah, that energy sprung program because what they do there is really clever. Not only is it a great, you know, obviously the upgrade that they do to the house, but the owner of the house doesn't pay anything upfront. It's done effectively as a low interest rate loan mm-hmm. and you pay back the loan through the savings in your energy costs. Yeah. So, you know, you're ahead from day one yeah. and you don't have to put any money out. And I'm just looking at a, at a really funny picture I'll send it to you afterwards of a, of a block of houses where all the owners have obviously decided to do this thing except for one. I've seen that <laughs> photo. All, yeah. They look amazing. They've got solar and there's this one crappy looking house in the middle that's obviously chosen not to do it. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that picture, but it's like the one house on the road that went no. Yeah, but it's it's something that Audrey and I were talking about because we're looking. We we bought a quite an old house, and our house is drafty, a ton. And so yeah, yeah. there's this ad in America when I lived there. It was for the sealant you put around your windows to stop the drafts, and the animation was really simple. It was classic infomercial: stop wasting money on your heating bells. And it was a person going, putting their hands on their hips and going, huh? <laughs> and they animated dollar bills flying out through the gaps. Yeah, right. Where the air went. Because, of course, you know, you talk about America. The place is below zero for half the year. It's yeah. fucking freezing. And they turn their heaters. They waste so much money heating air that's then just like going outside. And it, yeah. so Audrey and I were talking about where we bought this old drafty house and we're looking at maybe doing some work on it. And I just said to her, look, it might cost us more to hyper-insulate this place and hyper-seal this place. But if that's maybe two or three or four times what you would pay normally to make it done, we're going to live here for 50 years that'll probably be taken care of in the first 12, you know, and then what What are we saving? You know, if it's going to cost me over 50 years, if it's going to cost me a quarter of a million dollars to heat this place, that's a heck of a saving, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Well, imagine if, imagine if you were offered to be able to do that with no upfront cost and just slowly pay back over time for less than what your savings are, You'd probably take that up. I why, yeah, why would you say no? Is that similar? Was it Solar City that did that? There was a similar solar company that did that. They would put the solar panels on your house for free. Yeah, in America. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's schemes, definitely schemes. There's already a few schemes in Australia for just the solar panels themselves, but this yeah. is where we're widening that out and, and, you know, looking at the whole house. That's about 200,000 jobs. Retrofitting homes to be uh, more energy efficient now. A, a lot of the energy efficiency work has been done in the Northern Hemisphere where cold is the problem. It might have to be a bit different for our climate because, you know, heat's the problem down here. Yeah. So there'd be, it'd be a few... We'd... Speak for yourself. I'm in Melbourne. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been in Melbourne and it's been 43 degrees. Come on, man. <laughs> so I'm guessing there'd need to be a fair amount of homegrown initiative and homegrown manufacturing on that as well. Absolutely, yeah. So a great example is most people don't realise the biggest energy user in most people's houses is their hot water system, their gas hot water system. It just burns a truckload of gas. So 
one of the really great things you can do is upgrade your hot water system to a, a heat pump electric hot water system. You know, a heat pump is a renewable energy technology in itself. It pulls in heat from the atmosphere and just takes a little bit of electricity and then heats your hot water that way. And then if you have solar, you set the timer on your hot water system to run during the day when the solar is running, and then that heats your hot water, which you then use at night, So, which is the, the cheapest battery, effectively, you can get. So those systems are built in Australia, and, you know, again, if, if this is going to be a government-supported scheme, then you would expect that there's local procurement so that we're at the same time as we're doing this, yeah. we're building up our manufacturing base to be able to create these products. It seems like a great challenge. I mean, uh, Sydney is just full of these gigantic apartment buildings, certainly in the inner west, where there used to be factories, 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 factories. And I, when I first got to Sydney 20-something years ago, they were all still there. It seems like it would be quite an upfront cost to get factories and machining tools and all that stuff going again. But I'm guessing manufacturing's changed in all, the last 20 years? I think it's also the kind of manufacturing that's interesting. Australia, obviously, labour in Australia is more expensive than in other countries. So really labour-intensive manufacturing probably isn't a great fit for Australia. But, you know, any, any manufacturing where energy is more of an input cost or you need advanced techniques and, or, you know, all that sort of stuff is really well suited to us. But also, you know, just the stuff that we're going to use locally, like hot water systems, like wind turbines, you know, if we've got enough of a demand here that we've created, and we're talking about millions of houses, then obviously we should be supporting doing that in Australia. I guess it all comes down to who's got the, like any project, who's got the drive to keep this moving, who's got the drive to yeah. to put the incentive there and get the market moving in this direction. But I'm, I'm guessing each one of these has, as the bait, has the, it's cheaper. It's cheaper. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think we get, when we're talking about this, people often assume that we're just talking about a government paying for it all. It's like, oh, you just want another government big spending program. But because it's cheaper, there's, you know, really creative economic models we can do to encourage private investment in this. Like that, exactly like that energy sprung mm. program and home retrofit program, like that can be financed because it pays itself back. It can be a financing arrangement. It doesn't have to be the government just handing out grants, but they need to get involved in you know, the policy and the regulation and just setting the scene for that to be able to happen. Right. I'm guessing that's a lot of jobs. How many homes are there in Australia? Yeah. There's like 700,000 or something. Like 7 million, 8 million. Homes? 9 million dwellings in Australia. There you go. Crikey. So anyway, yeah, it's about 200,000 jobs. That's a lot of jobs. That's and, a lot of jobs. And, you know, we can get moving on those pretty quickly as well. So we're talking about retrofitting 500,000 a year, yes. which sounds like a lot. But France has that exact same target, and they've had it for a while. So, you know, we're not outside of the, the realms of yeah. possibility. I guess that's the thing. It's not like you're talking about, I want to do this magical thing that I'm inventing from thin air. It's like, no, there's countries that have been doing this shit already. Yeah. Plus, it's all the whole remit of Beyond Zero Emissions. We're not like boffins in a lab that are saying, you know, we need to invent some new technology. And then we're like, this is all just off-the-shelf stuff, really well understood. Mm. You know, it's nothing complicated about you're swapping your gas hot water system with a heat pump hot water system and whacking some solar panels on your roof and then improving your um, the insulation and, and energy efficiency of your house. I mean, we know we've been doing that for years. We know how to do it. We're just talking about a program that sets it up at scale because there's going to be benefits and it's going to get people to work. We're a country that digs stuff out of the ground. W yeah. With, I mean, those coal mining jobs, maybe you know people aren't going to want coal anymore, but surely there's battery minerals and things like that that we need to dig up. 
Well, I'm glad you asked, Osha, because um, <laughs> mining is a component of the plan. So it's interesting that for so long, people that talk about decarbonizing the country and action are, are, are kind of made in the media. If you read, just read the media, you would, you would think that we're against all mining and that all mining has to stop in Australia. Well, it's the opposite. Obviously, for this transition, mining is such a critical part of it. The steel, the critical minerals for the batteries, all that sort of stuff comes from mining. And mining has, a, has an incredible opportunity. There's so many mines in Australia, remote mines that are powered by diesel generators where you're trucking diesel long distances for lots of money to power these mines. And then you've got the issue of diesel fumes in the mines themselves. And it's not, not always a healthy work environment. And we've now got solar and batteries to a point, and, and a lot of mines are starting to go in this direction, is that you can install modular solar fields. Um, you can have batteries there so that they're continually running. And you can power mines with 100% renewable energy. And it's cheaper, it's healthier, and it's modular. And it means you can really increase the efficiency and the productivity of mines in Australia. So that's a key part of our plan. We see the mining sector expanding through the use of renewable energy. Yeah. And, and all the opportunities that doing all this other stuff means that we're going to need from the demand for the products of mining. Yeah, I'm guessing though, they've probably done this. I dare say they have. When you think about a mining truck, that thing's never going to go on the road, all right? And it's only ever going to go down, pick up a thing and go back up, dump it there, go down, pick up a thing, go back up. I mean, yeah. if, if there's not a, a better use case for an autonomous electric vehicle or a remotely piloted electric vehicle, come on, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and then again, you know, keep going the same pattern, but Australia's got a lot of mines. We use a lot of this equipment. So let's build the equipment here yeah. as well. You know, let's become a world expert in electric mine equipment. Yeah, and you're right, you know. Let's just be careful of the uh, Indigenous heritage sites as we do it, please. Of course. The assumption is obviously that the, <laughs> yes. the mining's done responsibly yes. and not just dumping crap everywhere and it's obviously yeah. we put negotiated back, yes. uh, with the traditional owners of the land. And we put it back when you know, we're We've done. done a lot of cons- consultation yeah. with the Indigenous community, so we're, we're very aware of all of, of all of those issues. But, you know, yeah. I think everyone accepts that mi- mining is a big part of Australia's yeah. future. So on the assumption it's done responsibly, yeah. let's also do it efficiently and more economically as well. Are there any opportunities for us as a nation? I mean, it seems to, that it would make sense for us to be the world leaders of solar and, and wind technology because we have so much sun and wind here. Also that we have so many battery minerals here. We're very well stocked with um, nickel and, uh, and lithium in our country. We're very lucky for that. What about when it comes to things like sequestration and, and when it comes to things like pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere? This yeah. is something that we are just going to have to do. It's not one solution will fix everything. There's got to be, you know, it's like Team Sky, how they won the Tour de France. They didn't get 20% better. They got 1% better at 20 things, and that's how yeah. they won. So I'm guessing there's some opportunity for growth there. Yeah, well, all I'd add to that list as well, the opportunity for recycling in Australia too. Because, yeah, right. you know, we, we, were, we had a recycling crisis before the COVID-19 crisis. You know, yeah. China stopped taking uh, recycling, <laughs> you know, what we were calling our recycling. We were just shipping it to... Um, China and China said no, we don't we don't want that stuff anymore. So we've kind of been stockpiling it and forced to deal with it. So we really need to develop a recycling industry in Australia. But you're absolutely correct. Land restoration and carbon farming is also something we have to do, particularly in the wake of the bushfires where so much land was impacted and degraded. So there's a big piece of work there as well. Like what's carbon farming? Carbon farming is putting carbon back into the soil. So all the different methods there either through 
changed farming methods or things like biochar or, you know, deliberate, you know, sections of land that, that you use plant trees and stuff just to suck carbon back into the soils. There's a whole range of activities that we need to ramp up. And they're also really great ways to get people back to work, you know, relatively unskilled people as well. You know, you hear about all these armies, you know, carbon armies or forestry armies or whatever, but people going out and doing land restoration work. So we've estimated about 50,000 jobs in that. Really? Yeah. Obviously, Australia is very much concentrated in our population, concentrated in our, in our capital cities, and I'm guessing that carbon farming takes place not near the capital cities. How are the people in the inner cities going to take advantage of these jobs or, or be a part of these jobs? Well, different jobs for different regions, like the building retrofits, you know, are probably more skewed towards the cities, uh-huh. and the farming is obviously out <laughs> in the regions. But, you know, there's so much of this stuff that actually cuts across both and often jobs plans are really focused on the cities because you know that's where a lot of the people are and a lot of the economy is but when you're talking about building out renewable energy building transmission lines yeah land restoration even the manufacturing you know we're talking about setting up you you hear about renewable energy zones and that's setting up renewable energy you know in a spot that has a really good sun and, and wind resource but we're talking about renewable energy industrial zones so you don't just set up the renewable energy there you set up the renewable energy and the factories that are going to take advantage of that cheap electricity and not have to transport it huge distances by transmission. All right. And then you kind of start thinking about a region. So like the Hunter Valley, for example, is a great spot to think about putting all of those things together. Got it. So you're, you're thinking about rather than you know, having a supply chain and a manufacturing chain that you need this part, but also that part. And these two things come from factories that are 500 kilometers from each other. And so then there's all that carbon getting the bits to and from. It's putting the power plant, the solar plant there, and then the, the factories that build the thing there, and then the factory that assembles it there and having them all quite close, right? Yeah. What's been great about doing this work is thinking about things from a bigger picture, because often when you're just trying to solve one problem, it can be really hard and intractable. But when you're trying to solve multiple problems at once, sometimes it's easier. So, you know, a great example is we're talking about recycling. You know, it's hard to set up a recycling industry. You need to have something to do with the materials that you're recycling. You know, you you take the plastic and you turn it into something and then you need to have a market for that something. Otherwise, it doesn't stack up. And that's the hard bit. But, you know, if we're going to put money into modernising manufacturing in Australia, part of that process would be setting up manufacturing to be able to accept the recycled input materials. And then you've created a demand for the recycled materials. You've solved some of the problems with manufacturing. You've grown manufacturing. You've given them access to cheap materials because they've been set up to accept that. And you're solving multiple problems at the one time. So, you know, with a lot of this stuff, you can think about that. Like another good example, we haven't talked about transportation, electric buses, you know, that's a really low hanging fruit. You go to London and half the buses are already electric. It's quieter, it's cleaner you know, they're more comfortable to go on and they're cheaper to run. So obviously we're going to electrify our bus fleet in Australia. So rather than importing buses from China, let's set up an electrified bus manufacturing facility. Let's, you know, we can do it somewhere like in the Hunter Valley. It's close to the renewable energy zone. So we can, you know, you start getting this virtual cycle. You're solving all these problems together yeah. and you're creating jobs in the process. Because, we, you know, it's, it's often said that the switch to renewables in Australia, as much as other people might, shout and scream about coal-fired power stations, they, the ones that we currently have, are nearing the ends of their lives rapidly. And it makes utterly no economic sense whatsoever. And no government would greenlight, uh, if they didn't want to get voted out, uh, outdated 
um, obsolete and expensive and dirty technology when there is a cleaner, more future-proof, adaptable, modular technology to say yes to. But all these things have life cycles. All these things have product cycles. So I guess you would start with buses. I guess you'd go looking around Australia and go, okay, who's got the oldest fleet? Who's got the oldest bus fleet? Who's got the oldest, smallest? Okay, Fremantle. Okay, let's go. We'll start with you. And then boom, you know, and you kind of, as each bus fleet nears the end of its life versus various city councils and, and cities and country towns, whatever, you start replacing these buses as the ones that we currently have. So it becomes a no-brainer. So when it comes, you wait for that moment where they're deciding who, do, who gets the next contract. You go, well, here's one that's cheaper to run. Then it becomes the easiest, next best easiest option. Is that right? It's got to be the next. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, like, if someone's going to make the choice about eating meat or eating plant-based, we're saying it's just got to be the next easiest thing. And yeah. it's, it's the next no, easiest, right. cheapest thing. So you just, you just have to be right in front of the people who are making the decisions going, it's the next easiest, cheapest thing. Here it is. Yeah. The trick is making it obvious to them that it is the easiest decision. Because, you know, you've got to think about often the people making these decisions, they're taking a risk by doing something different. They could just mm. order another bus fleet, the same as they've ordered bus fleets in the past, another diesel bus fleet. You know, they're not going to lose their job over that because they're just doing what they've kind of always done. We're changing you know, is a bit of a risk. You know, what what happens if it doesn't work out? What happens if the charging infrastructure isn't in place in time? Oh man, I've got to organise charging infrastructure. It's a bit change is a bit of, is a process. You know, so you know people have to be comfortable, really comfortable. This is the the next best thing, and they've got to be clear on the numbers and on the evidence. And obviously, case studies are great. And as more and more countries around the world do it, it'll become more and more obvious. You know, it's a shame that Australia often doesn't want to lead on this stuff, but sometimes we do lead on this stuff. I mean, we've got more homes with solar panels than than any other country in the world per capita. So it's kind of confusing. There's no way, we can't really stereotype ourselves as, you know, there's people that say Australia's hopeless and people that say Australia's great. And the answer is kind of in the middle because we're all just humans and we're all doing our best. But um, it's pretty clear the way things are going and we just have to be a little bit more comfortable with change because it's positive change and it's going to make our lives better. How is this going to make your life better? I like the things the way they are. Aitam, why do you have to go changing everything? Why do you have to go messing with it? It works perfectly. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Well, by way of answering, I'll say that all the things we've talked about so far, the job, it's added up to about 900,000 jobs. We're not quite at the million. And the last bit of the plan is, to your point, is what we're calling community-led initiatives. Uh So there's over 100,000 jobs in that. And so beyond zero emissions, we've been working for years with a number of of local communities. We call it our zero carbon communities program. And that's working with small towns or regional areas that want to decarbonize and want to, you know, have a need help with that journey. And so we went back to them and said, like, yeah, what are the things in your town that will improve your lives, will help you kind of decarbonize, will get people employed? And and they've given us, you know, we've got hundreds of projects now that have come in and they add up to over 100,000 jobs all put together. And I guess the point of that is that it is hard to sometimes answer, you know, what, what about this is going to make my life better? Because it's often abstract. We're talking about switching out all the coal power stations and, renew- and changing with renewable power stations. I mean, that'll make our lives better because electricity will be cheaper. You know, there'll be less pollution. You know, climate change won't happen as fast. But that's still kind of abstract in a way where if I say your town is going to have a battery put into it, which means that everyone in your town can put solar panels on your roof and trade with each other or, you know, we're going to set up a carbon farming hub in your region and allow the community to participate in that and, and hire local people to get that going. I think that the great story here is around a sense of shared purpose and community. To me, it's kind of like the plan to go to the moon 
in the 60s, you know? It's like, how do we all get together and have a shared vision of what we're trying to do as a country and get this feeling like we're all working together to kind of get somewhere? That's what this vision is. It's, it's a million jobs, but it's also just the big project of our generation. I mean, that's all we're going to be talking about for the rest of our lives, I'll share. So I um, hope you enjoy the conversation. But, you know, this is it for our life. This is the big project of our time, you know. For other generations, it was World War II. Yes. It was the moon landing. It was that sort of stuff. For us, it's decarbonisation. And, um, you know, if we can communicate in a way that gets people excited about that challenge and makes us feel more connected to each other because it's something we're all going to do and to leave our kids a better place, then um, I think that's the real benefit. When you talk about the prosperity, and I was trying to tell this around election time, the last election, there was some of the guys I played poker with, actually. I was going about, yeah, but this, they don't have a very good climate change. plan. he goes, yeah, but I, I own a business, man, and I like, I like making money. And I'm like, what, you reckon that the people who want to protect the planet don't like making money? <laughs> I like making money. money. Money's good. I could pay my mortgage. I could put food on the table. There's money to be made in decarbonizing, isn't there? Well, not only is there money to be made, I mean, this is going to be the biggest investment ever in human history. We're talking about trillions and, and trillions of dollars. So if your business isn't thinking about how it's going to get a piece of that action, then you're not really thinking about the future of your business very well, because that's the big project of our age. That's where the big investments are going to happen now. And, you know, my, my background is tech. You know, I founded a tech company. That's where I've worked in, in most of my life. And the number of people I get now coming up to me that have just quit their jobs in the tech industry, it's like, you know, I'm a super smart person. I've got all this expertise. Climate change seems like the most important problem I should be working on, not like some social media app. What should I do? Put me to work kind of thing. And either we need to find things for these people to do because there's, that's what people want to do. That's what gives them joy in their life and gives them a sense of purpose. And you're absolutely, when, I, when you do think about that, just to think about the investment again, like if you could go back to 1800 and say, all right, so the world's about to change. Not only is it in the next 30 years is every major city in the world going to be electrified and manufacturing and living at home and the work-life balance of women will utterly change because they'll now have machines that can do things that would otherwise take them half a day to do. But everyone's going to get a, a thing that doesn't need a horse and there's going to need to be a fuel supply system that's going to take them around and we're going to refine this fuel and find this fuel. And here's your chance to invest in it. You'd be fucking laughing right now. <laughs> you know, yeah. If that was your great-great-granddad and he had a chat with Mr. Rockefeller, you'd be laughing right now. But this, it really seems to me like there's been, I never thought in my lifetime that there'll be such a massive and predictable externality that will guide the market in such a predictable way that the ability to invest cleverly would be so extraordinarily obvious as there is right now with this. And here it is. 100%. People will be looking back in 50 years and being like, People didn't get that this was all just about to happen. But you, you make the perfect analogy. Like we took someone from 1870 and said, look at the world in 1920, like <laughs> the telephone, the radio, the car, electricity. I mean, their head would explode. They'd be like, how, how have we done so much in 50 years? You know, and all, I thought we just made some engines. Steam was amazing. Yeah. It's the same thing, you know, so it's really exciting. There's all the predictable stuff that's going to change. Yeah, we'll swap out our coal power stations with renewable electricity and we'll electrify stuff and our cars will, you know, it's completely obvious that all our cars will become electric cars and all that sort of stuff. But what I'm really excited about is, you know, all the stuff that we don't expect is going to happen. Like, you know, all the advantages, you know, electrifying something like with a Tesla car, 
it wasn't just about switching out the petrol engine to an electric engine. That was the basis of all this other innovation. You know, now the car can drive itself. You know, you can't really do self-driving on a petrol-powered car. It can do all this other stuff because it's just become a computer on wheels, basically. And that's what's going to happen to manufacturing. That's what's going to happen to our houses. That's what's going to happen to lots of different stuff. And people are often scared of too much change. You know, they're nervous at that vision sometimes because, like, what are you saying? Everything's going to change around us. But I don't think it's going to be anything like that 1870 to 1920 change. Like, you can go forward 50 years and things will still be recognisable. People will still be driving cars. We'll be living in our buildings. But the streets will be quieter. You know, the air will be cleaner. Hopefully, climate change will be more under control. So I feel like it's a change that we, if communicated well, people can embrace. It's those changes that we and those opportunities that we are yet to see. And a, a great example would be in 2006, there was no touchscreen smartphones. There was Blackberries, but there was no iPhones, right? And then five years later, everyone's got an iPhone. And now because of this thing that is a GPS tracker, it's a portable computer, it's a technology device, this now allows entire industries Uber, Deliveroo, you name it. Like these things that were unimaginable before that are now suddenly just day to day and we don't even think about it. So once you start electrifying various things like buses, trains, hopefully there'll be some way of doing air air travel that is not so carbon destructive, ships, logistical supply chains, things like that. It just boggles the mind to think about, well, what to serendipitous industries will suddenly collide and create a third thing, which we have no idea yet. We don't know that we don't know what it is. And that could then change everything. 100%. And that's really exciting. Yeah. My company was an app development company. We started right back in the early days of the iPhone when the app store first opened. And we used to go out to other companies and say, you know, you should have an app. You know, we'll build an app for you. And um, people would laugh at us, like, why on earth would we need an app for? Like, to us, it was just obvious that this change was coming. Yeah. And obviously, you're going to want to check your banking on your phone when you're out rather than having to get home, log into your computer, get it all, you know, that's crazy. But, you know, what was obvious to us, it took longer for other people to come across it. But eventually, everyone did. And, and it's exactly the same with this transition as well. To me and to you, it's completely obvious the way the world's going and it is going in that direction. And, you know, for others, it just takes a, bit, a little bit longer to, um, to get there. What countries are uh, already on this trend? What countries are building their economic recovery out of COVID with this sort of work? So South Korea, I haven't announced it. I wouldn't normally think of South Korea as like a hippie country. It's like heavily industrialised. Massively Big so. manufacturing base. So they've really gone all in on, in terms of their recovery. And uh, I think they, they recognise the opportunity for them in that. The UK, I love what they're, what, what are the UK calling it? They're calling it the Green Industrial Revolution. That's what they're calling their, their initiative, you know, which is good. It plays to their strengths. And I mean, America is the big elephant in the room and it's going to be very interesting. You know, I think the American elections coming up is going to be one of these big sliding door moments because you've got the Democratic Party where, you know, really the, the whole idea of a climate emergency and the need to go really fast on climate has really deeply rooted in, in the Democratic Party now. And you've got some amazing people that are advising Joe Biden on his climate change plan. So, you know, I think depending on who wins that election, we'll hopefully see America start going down that path pretty fast. They're calling this the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal. Because yeah. that's on in the 1920s, um, in the Depression there, the plan to get people back to work was called the New Deal. So this is the Green New Deal. Yeah. You know, it made, made a bit less sense 
when there was kind of less unemployment and stuff in America. But now it's actually the perfect time because unemployment there is through the roof. You've got massive inequality. You know, America's got so many problems and you can really, through a climate lens, solve a whole lot of these intractable problems that you can't, you know, try to attack them one by one. So to Australia, we're even more so this weird little hermit island down at the bottom of the world because no one can come and go at the moment and yeah. it's, it's a bit odd. What's standing in our way from just doing this tomorrow? That is a great question. There is, I mean, we've covered a lot of it in this conversation. There's, I think there is vested interests who, to them, this is unfortunately an existential threat. Like they could pivot and not have it be an existential threat, but they, they haven't all made that pivot yet. So they've decided to kind of fight to maintain what they have rather than accept the trend of where things are going and kind of help that trend rather than hinder it. There is absolutely the need for a plan in Australia. Like, you know, we've got this incredible renewable resource, but we don't have the transmission going to those places in order to get them out. Um, and that's because we haven't planned effectively over the last 10 years, even though kind of we, we did know that this was coming. And then there's just, you know, like I say, it just takes time for that common wisdom. Like, you know, for a manufacturer to decide, I'm going to put in the money to upgrade my factory to be an electrical factory because I trust that I'm going to be able to run it off cheaper off electricity than off gas. I mean, that's a brave decision to be the first big factory to do that kind of thing if, if you're looking around and your uh, colleagues in the industry haven't done it yet. But someone will. I mean, they're already doing it overseas and it'll happen here probably sooner rather than later. And then and you'll start getting this snowball effect, kind of like when people started putting solar on their houses, the first person in the street put in their roof and everyone else came and had a look at it and, you know, there was a conversation, you know, did it make sense? Is it cheap? Was it? And then now it's like, you're almost like ostracized on the street if you don't have solar panels on your roof because everyone else has them. <laughs> Speaking of solar panels, like I've read a few things about a solar plant to, to, to run in the Northern Territory that's going to basically then run an extension lead to sort of Singapore. Um, like that sounds so big. Like what bureaucracy on earth would even allow it to happen on a thing of that scale? When it comes to these big plants and these big, bold initiatives, doesn't it take, what did I see the other day? Um, our PM was saying, oh, shovel-ready projects will be ready to go in 23 months, which is half the time it used to take to approve them. I thought, well, okay. <laughs> like how do you, when, when you're faced with such red tape, how do projects of that size even get off the ground? Well, I mean, so you're talking about the Sun Cable Project up in the Northern Territory. I'm actually yes. an investor in that project, so I can... Smart I'm, move. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is like, I mean, it's an insane project. It's the world's biggest solar farm with the world's biggest battery and then the world's biggest undersea cable to go to Singapore, you know, and the idea is to supply Singapore with 20% of its electricity. At face value, it does sound crazy, but, you know, if you think about where Singapore gets its energy from now, it's all from gas. And that gas gets shipped across <laughs> the same distance on a boat, pulled out of the ground, liquefied with a huge amount of energy into a liquid, put onto a boat, shipped, you know, thousands of kilometres and then put into a power station, just burnt. And then some of that heat happens to go into turning the thing that creates the electricity, what, what we want it to do. So you've also got to think about how crazy the current system is as well. You know, from an engineering perspective, I mean, solar, we know how to do that. You can build a big solar farm. It's not that complicated. Batteries, you know, we know how to lay out lots of batteries. The question is, can you get the cost of the batteries down to a point where it's economic? And the cost curve of batteries is coming down so fast that, um, you know, we'll get there. 
And then the cable. I mean, we know how to build these cables. I mean, this is the longest one, so it's definitely going to be more of a challenge than um, building a short one. But from an engineering perspective, we know how to do it. So then it just becomes, can we put it all together? Can we get the deals in place to actually get enough buyers in Singapore for that electricity? And can you get across the geopolitical risk and all that sort of stuff? So it ends up kind of like all this other stuff. You know, it becomes less of a technical problem and more of a political and, you know, psychological problem, which, you know, ultimately that's where we're at with climate change. Like we have all the technical stuff, except for maybe plane travel and, you know, some of the big things like steel, although even for that we're, we're pretty close. Apart from those things, we, we've pretty much got all the technical solutions. So it really just comes down to the psychological and the political and the stories that we tell and narratives and the business and all that side of things. So that's why the importance of what you do, talking to people, making it relatable, getting it through to people and inspiring people that these we can do this. Projects like Sun Cable are amazing because they're the kinds of things that trigger human wonder at the scale and the ambition and what we can do. I've spoken to very few people about that project that don't come away kind of inspired and I'm um, like, yeah, go Australia. We can do this. How far is it between Darwin and Singapore? The cable is going to be, I think it's like 3,200 kilometres. So that's like that's the moon landing of extension leads. <laughs> <laughs> but I get what you're saying. You know, like if as a country, if we're able to build an infrastructure project of that scale, I guess what you're saying there, it's the, oh, it's the, it's yeah. the wonder, it's the awe. And if you're able to make it work financially... That's the next 100 years of power. And then I think, isn't Manila closer? You could probably run a lead to the Philippines as well. But yeah, I mean, we've done, and, and what's, uh, what I always find interesting is when you look back at history, humans used to be a lot more confident about these kinds of crazy yeah. projects. Like, you know, when we built the first telegraph cable across Australia in the 1800s, I think one group had walked from South Australia to Darwin before. But the South Australian Parliament was like, you know what, we need to get a telegraph, we need to get it all the way to England so we can get information and we're going to need a cable across from Australia from here. So um, let's do it, go for it. And they had a team start from Darwin and a team start from, um, I think, Port Augusta. And they just, you know, no one had walked that way before really and they just kind of met in the middle. But, you know, it's one of those unintended consequences things, you know, that it hooked Australia up to England so we had communications. But also that cable became the road, if you know what I mean. And then you started getting settlements popping up on that road and it created a whole lot of other industry around it. So it's the same thing. Once you make the effort, just like the moon landing, all of these big efforts lead to all of these unintended positive consequences. We wouldn't have Velcro today if we didn't have the moon landing. Wouldn't that be a disaster? There would be no Air Force Ones (laughs) had people not landed on the moon. That's what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, man, I could... I'm really grateful that I came to get to know you, man, because I was pretty fucking worried. I was pretty worried because this story that we're telling today was not a story that was getting told enough. The people that had the mic were, we're all going to burn, everything is going to go underwater, everything that we need to eat is going to die, we're all fucked. That was the people that had the mic, and that's certainly what my head was telling me all the time. But... I much prefer the, yes, it's going to change and there's nothing we can do about that, but we can prosper out of this change and we can pivot right now and create wealth and security and a future and who knows what yet out of this situation. And that's a far more lovely story to hold in my heart. 
think so, yeah. And don't, don't get me wrong, I'm still scared shitless about climate change. And, you know, the reason that Beyond Zero Emissions is different is because we're proposing things to happen at the scale and the speed that we need to stop all that from happening. So, you know, this is a million jobs because we want to we want to decarbonise relatively quickly in Australia well, and in the whole world. But, I mean, humans always, we seem to be that species. We just always leave stuff to the last minute. We're always doing our homework the night before that it's, <laughs> that it's due. And by, I don't know if you want to call it a, it's not a miracle because a lot of hard work's gone into it. But, you know, we're kind of at this point now where economically this is all stacking up. So the impediments aren't really there anymore. You know, it's just, we've just got to kind of accept that and get on with it and move fast and get everyone behind it. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Besides you, who is it in the world that you get inspired by, get excited by? Who else can people look to if they're looking for a dose of at least someone smarts onto this? <laughs> who do you think? <laughs> who do you think when you look and go, Jesus, that girl's smart or that guy's smart in the climate space, who do you look to? I'm a big fan of the people telling a positive story. So, you know, Damon Gamow, who made the um, 2040 movie, I thought that was a brilliant piece of storytelling. You know, you've got the people that are they're trying to enable these big inspirational lighthouse projects like Sun Cable. So, you know, people like Mike Cannon-Brooks who are willing to put their money where their mouth is behind it. But, you know, there's, I've been inspired by so many people that have, um, you know, beyond zero emissions, I think we have got over 200 volunteers now, people that donate their time for free to come and work on this stuff. And I could list 50 people kind of amongst the smartest people I've ever met that are working on this stuff. And, you know, they're not famous. People don't know who they are. But, you know, there's a whole community of people work, working really hard on this stuff to um, just get the word out there and make people realise that technically we can do this, financially we can do this. We just have to want to do it. We just have to believe that we can do it. And as an engineer, talking about belief and all that stuff is not, not very comfortable, but you kind of get to that point. <laughs> That's all right. Jeez, you've got fancy chairs, man. I just saw your fancy chair just then. It's, nice a, chair. it's a heck of a fancy chair. Aitan, I really, I really could talk to you all day, but I know you're the busiest man in the world and um, it's probably time that you went and hung with your kids. It's that time of day. So look, just thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today, buddy. Thanks for being so supportive of um, what we do and thanks for being such a great conduit to the wider <laughs> world. You know, you're one of these fantastic interfaces, I think, in, in the way that you translate that, you know, I could have been having conversation, all sorts of kind of really geeky technical stuff. But oh, we um, can do geeky technical stuff. Don't I know worry. You can, I know, but you're, you're, you're great at kind of getting it to a point where it's easy to communicate and people can be inspired and really kind of have a, a vision in their head of what's going on. So thank you. <laughs> well, um, I guess, you know, the, but the last thing I would, I would ask is like, there's people who are probably listening now going, great, what can I do? Nah. People might like to think about what is it that I can do today? That'll help people like Aitan. What would you say? I'd love to just give an easy answer, but everyone's got different skills. You know, are you a doctor? Are you an engineer? If you're an engineer, you know, we'll come, you know, help out at BZE and help us work on our plans. But, you know, I think one of the most important things that people can do is kind of, if this conversation's inspired you at all, go out there, do a bit of reading. You know, you can look at the BZE website, bze.org.au. All of our plans are there. You don't have to get right into the technical detail, but just read the executive summaries and it'll give you a good flavour of what we're talking about and talk to people about it. You know, I think there's, there's a big thing in Australia where people feel uncomfortable talking about this stuff and often because it's a negative conversation, you know, climate change, exactly what you were saying before, climate change is going to kill us all or it's going to be the end of the world. It's a downer of a conversation. So, you know, challenge yourself to have a positive 
conversation about climate change. Talk to people about the opportunities, about some of the stuff you just heard now, about the things you're looking forward to in this change and try to create, you know, let's get a positive vibe going about the opportunity here because um, I think once that catches on, it's going to be pretty hard to hold things back. Eitan, I cannot thank you enough for your time. You're the best. I'm at your service. Let me know if there's anything I can do at all to help you, all right? Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Eitan Linko. What a chap. bze.org.au. Find out more about the Million Jobs Plan. Call your MP, email your MP, write to your MP, let them know about it. Let them know. Like, hey, you're looking for a way to help the economy get going? You're ready to help the battles? You're looking for a way to transition that country off of something that's going to kill us all and onto something that will bring us all nothing but possibility and abundance? These guys have a pretty good idea. Could you do something about it? Uh, yeah, that's generally it. The gist. bze.org.au. You can find Aitan on Twitter as well if you heard him and you liked what he had to say. You can let him know. Aitan Lenko, E-Y-T-A-N-L-E-N-K-O. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks heaps to everyone that helped me make the show today. Andy Marr, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, uh, who sends me the best songs in the morning. We um, text each other the songs that we're feeding our kids to in the morning and uh, she's got a cracking taste in music. Hayley Van Spania for working so hard on the socials this week. Mike Mills for the music. Don't forget the new book's coming out on Wednesday. There you go. Wednesday. It's a perfect gift for anyone who has a birthday on Wednesday. Oh, whatever. New book, new chapters, and a special chapter from Audrey. It's a revised, updated edition of the book, and I, I certainly hope you enjoy it. I've got to split. Got to get upstairs. Got to do some baby sleeping feeding situation. All right, you're ace. Thanks for listening. Until we speak on Friday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. <laughs>